Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Thursday, February the 9th. This week we're discussing type 2 diabetes, pegged to a seminar that we published today. In a moment, I'll be speaking to Dr. Sudesna Chatterjee from the University of Leicester, who's going to talk about some of the highlights of this seminar, which is a good discussion point. But before that, let's speak to her boss, Professor Melanie Davis, about a very exciting initiative that's taking place between The Lancet and diabetes experts worldwide. Hello, my name is Melanie Davies. I'm a professor of diabetes medicine and a consultant diabetologist at the University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust and the University of Leicester, UK. Please, can you outline in broad terms an exciting collaboration that is coming up between yourselves and The Lancet next year, 2018? There's a Lancet Diabetes Commission, which is an exciting uh, collaboration between experts from Asia, South America, North America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, Australasia and the UK. Leicester, London and Cambridge are very pleased to be involved in this. So this is a very ambitious and broad remit that we've been given to really look at the causes and consequences of diabetes, both type 1 and type 2 diabetes on a global basis, to really understand the epidemiology and disease burden, particularly in low and middle income countries, to really scope out what's happening in terms of the prevention of diabetes and uh, particularly the treatment of diabetes and its comorbidities on a global level because the drivers and the challenges are very different, uh, particularly in a low and middle income setting. And to also look at the economic impact of diabetes really on a very comprehensive scale to really come up with some potential conclusions in terms of where the gaps are and how we might fill some of those gaps with uh, research and collaborative working moving forward. Hello, my name is Dr. Sudesna Chatterjee and I'm a senior clinical researcher and diabetes in consultant in Leicester. Dr. Chatterjee, we're going to cover in fairly broad brush strokes some of the key points coming out of this really fascinating clinical update really on type 2 diabetes. We've got to cover a bit of ground, but of course, as always, we do stress the real details can be found in the paper, which we urge everyone listening to this podcast to look up. But let's start with the epidemiology of type 2 diabetes because the figures are striking, aren't they? We know that since 2015, Type 2 diabetes has become the sixth leading cause of disability worldwide. And this means that diabetes is placing considerable pressures on the individual and to global health economies as the result of the disease and its complications. Just so we're clear here, I'm sure many people listening to this will be familiar with type 2 diabetes. Clearly, it is an increasing health problem worldwide. But could you just give an example of how lifestyle factors and other factors can contribute to someone transitioning into type 2 diabetes? There are some very clear risk factors for the development of type 2 diabetes. These are Briefly, the rising incidence of obesity, sedentary lifestyles, and aging population, and also energy-dense diets, and all of these are contributing to increased insulin resistance and relative insulin deficiency, and consequently, this then leads to type 2 diabetes after a period of impaired glucose regulation. Impaired glucose regulation is the state before the development of diabetes and is reversible, and therefore type 2 diabetes can be prevented. And you've just touched on there, prevention. I mean, this is absolutely crucial. What is possible from the prevention point of view? And of course, there are many efforts. 
the UK diabetes prevention strategy, for example? Yes, we know that a combination of weight management, healthy eating and increased physical activity are all factors that can lead to prevention of diabetes or at least a delay in its development. The evidence backs up the fact that lifestyle is particularly effective in doing this. To some extent, there are a number of medications that can also help in the prevention of diabetes, but none that are actually licensed for that use. But certainly lifestyle measures are the main way forward, and the UK has established the first national diabetes prevention program to tackle this um, enormous crisis of this chronic condition. And how far advanced is that UK diabetes prevention strategy? Is it having an impact yet? It's really just begun and it's really at the pilot stage and there are a number of centres around the country but the programmes are very much up and running and we should be getting results from that strategy in the near future. How important is early diagnosis of diabetes and leading on to how it should be managed? Because the seminar does talk about diagnosis, of course, but also the importance of, of a multidisciplinary team approach. Tell us more about that. Because type 2 diabetes has a preclinical stage, it is entirely possible to detect the condition early by appropriate opportunistic screening of those patients who have uh, risk factors and this means that we can detect these patients and instigate interventions such as lifestyle and drug therapies so that the development of microvascular and macrovascular complications is either prevented or delayed. So the microvascular complications that we're talking about are eye disease or retinopathy, neuropathy, renal disease, and also the macrovascular complications, specifically heart disease and stroke, which are major causes of premature morbidity and mortality in these patients. So it's important that patients who are at risk of diabetes are screened regularly and then they have an opportunity to modify their risk factors. Your personal opinion in terms of the risk factors, and we know so much about this because in a broader sphere it concerns the growing obesity epidemic which obviously overlaps with diabetes, particularly type 2 disease. Do you have a sense as to what is the main driver in terms of the risk factor? Do you think it is poor diet combined with not enough exercise? Is that the lethal combination, do you think? I think it really starts with the, the genotype of the individual so that there are clearly some high-risk groups and ethnic groups such as South Asian population compared to other populations and perhaps the Hispanics. And, and, and they are all at much higher risk simply from a genetic component. Um, and then this is their phenotype, which is made up of obesity and sedentary behavior and a diet that is not high in nutritional value, these then promote the development of diabetes. So there are distinct effects from a sort of genotype and, and phenotype point of view that that promotes the development of diabetes. And in terms of the multidisciplinary team approach, we hear this a lot, and of course it sounds very sensible, but you're going to need a mature health system, aren't you, to have a multidisciplinary approach. And, and if you look at the data, epidemiologically, it's in lone middle-income countries where we have an enormous burden of disease, where there's going to be a struggle for health systems to deliver that type of support. Yes, that's right. I mean, type 2 diabetes is a complex condition. It's a, it's a lifelong condition, as yet there is no cure for it. And therefore, the multidisciplinary approach is critical. So that necessitates input from not only diabetes specialists, diabetes nurses, psychologists as well, also podiatrists. And when 
when they develop their complications, obviously they'll need input from cardiology, from the renal physicians, the ophthalmologists. So there are a, a large number of patients and of course not forgetting primary care as well that the role of primary care is crucial in coordinating all of these various teams. So the multidisciplinary team has to work together to ensure that the patient is provided with the highest level of care at all times throughout their disease process. But do you accept that in some health systems that type of approach isn't going to be possible? So that's sort of part of the challenge, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. We know that in low and middle income countries where up to 80% of the global population of, of patients with diabetes are living, that access to multidisciplinary teams is likely to be much more difficult because the, the number of doctors and nurses per capita of the population is much less. And therefore, it's important that guidelines, national, international guidelines, reflect the best sort of evidence-based strategies that can be followed to ensure that even within relatively restricted restricted healthcare systems, the patients are being managed according to the best standards, even despite the fact that they might not have access to all the resources that are ideally required. And I'm sure that's something that will be picked up in the Lancet Diabetes Commission that Professor Davis mentioned earlier. Just moving through a few other key points in the seminar that we publish this week, self-management and psychological support. This seems to be an important approach for people in terms of helping themselves manage type 2 disease. Can you tell us a bit more about this? So it's been increasingly recognized over the last few years that the, as a chronic condition, type 2 diabetes requires ongoing support and patients cannot just take glucose-lowering therapies and expect to improve their outcomes. And it really needs to be self-managed and supported by a lifestyle education program that can be either on a one-to-one -one or a group-structured education basis, but it's underpinned by theories of adult learning and really is about promoting self-care, self-motivation. And we found that actually it could probably be in the long run, more cost-effective for patients to attend these structured education and self-management programs than even the investment into simply just glucose-lowering therapies. So it's really ensuring that patients have access to a combination of education, psychological support, and of course, glucose-lowering therapies as well. Talking of which, we must of course cover the drug therapy updates going on with, with type 2 disease. Obviously, there are a number of drugs around. They've been around for a while. How would you best summarize where we are with therapeutic management of type 2 disease? I think in, in some ways, it's quite an exciting time from the glucose-lowering therapies point of view. For many decades, we did not have access to more than insulin, metformin, and sulfonylureas. But more recently, there have been quite a few new drug classes and the most excitement recently has come from the fact that two of the more recent classes have been shown to improve cardiovascular outcomes, specifically one of the SGLT2 inhibitors and one of the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And this suggests that we will be able to optimize the glucose-lowering therapy that we provide to patients and reduce the risk of their developing cardiovascular disease, which is something of major concern because ultimately that is the biggest reason for mortality in these patients. And turning to future perspectives, and again, this is quite an exciting area, isn't it? Personalized medicine, the relationship between genotype, phenotype, stem cell therapy, for example, gene therapy, electronic devices. Could you just summarize some of the exciting developments, some of which are happening now, aren't they? They're not way off in the future. Not at all. I think certainly 
the technology is rapidly progressing and this is allowing all sorts of exciting developments both in monitoring of diabetes and this means that we can continuously monitor glucose now and get real-time feedback on patients' blood glucose levels which can help them adjust their medication and also their lifestyle and we've also got some devices that are being developed to deliver therapy, for example, bionic insulin delivery devices. These are used more for patients with type 1 diabetes, but they're also being explored in type 2 diabetes. There are also areas of research into new drug therapies as we recognize more and more the therapeutic targets as our understanding of the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes grows. So that's pretty exciting as well. But there's a lot of work around stem cells and metabolomics and transcriptomics, but they haven't really translated into clinical benefits for patients as yet on a larger scale. But in summary, are you relatively optimistic about the path ahead despite the huge challenges that remain? Yes, I think it's a huge area of research. Type 2 diabetes is such an enormous uh, global problem that there are lots of areas that we're focusing on. And I think that the ideal would be to try and cure diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes in the future, but this is perhaps a little way off still. However, there are so many areas of research going on in new therapies, new electronic devices, and looking at the genotype and trying to understand exactly what causes diabetes to develop that I think that actually the future is very exciting and we should have a lot more available to help the patients in the next few years. Dr. Sudesna Chatterjee, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. And turning to Professor Melanie Davis, I suppose when one looks generally, an awful lot of progress has been made. But I guess one question I have is, given that we're getting better at managing type 2 disease, is there a slight danger that we might be offsetting the potential gains we can make through disease prevention? I think I'm saying, is our glass half full or half empty when it comes to type 2 diabetes? I think it's it's really important that we have to be optimistic and look to the positives moving forward. There's no doubt that there is a massive challenge. So in terms of just the volume of the numbers, the changing sort of phenotype of patients, the challenges in lower middle income countries, it's a huge challenge. But I think if we look at the possibilities that we have really in terms of our understanding of the determinants of diabetes, what we can do to prevent it moving forward and the rapid advancement both in behavior change intervention medical therapies and our understanding of the epidemiology, I think there's a great optimism for, for the future. Many thanks indeed to Professor Melanie Davis and earlier to Dr. Sudesna Chatterjee. Thanks for listening. See you next time.